it's all of the moment and now people are talking about it. But when we were launching and it was like, oh, we're starting a laundry detergent company. Everyone's like, are you out of your mind? You know, our parents thought we were crazy. We were at these great jobs. I was leaving a 401k, which was like the holy grail to my parents. And it just sounded crazy. It was never crazy to us. We were extremely confident with what we were doing. Success as an entrepreneurista can involve thinking ahead of the trend or even innovation, taking big risks and thinking outside the box. In the case of Gwen Whiting, co-founder of The Laundress, a successful line of eco-friendly laundry and home products, it's all of these. Inspired with an idea while working in the fashion industry at Ralph Lauren and trying to maintain her wardrobe while using the local laundromat, Gwen teamed up with her friend who had a complimentary skill set and was also encouraged by her then boss to go for it. Coming up, you'll hear how Gwen and her partner found money early on, from business loans to throwing for-profit parties to fundraise in the days before GoFundMe. How forward-thinking, such as launching an e-commerce website more than 15 years ago, when Amazon was still a bookseller, has been a powerful force for Gwen about the challenges of building an e-commerce brand and generating buzz in the pre-social media era. How the laundress got ahead of the market in creating detergents free of petroleum products long before the trend of green, eco-friendly products. Why the co-founders made a risky decision to fund the business by amassing considerable credit card debt rather than taking VC money the process of selling the brand to Unilever, and why having the right lawyer and team behind you during such a pivotal time matters so much. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Gwen, so we met probably a little over, was it a month or two ago? Wait, time flies. Yeah, October. beginning of March. I mean, but excuse me, what year is it? Uh, beginning of November. This is what happens after the new year. We have no idea what day, or, what day or time this is. Yes, a few months ago, we both went to Cornell, and I had heard about you and your business, and we met. I knew that you were the perfect guest to share your story. So thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you co-founded your business with also a fellow Cornelian, correct? Correct, yes. How did this business come to be? Because you were working in the fashion world and now you started a company that's selling different types of detergents. So how does that happen? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So I was working at Ralph Lauren and I had this amazing wardrobe that I was amassing through sample sales and but you know my income my first income and it was the advent of the the hundred dollar jean and the uh 50 plus white t-shirt and I was struggling I was living in a six-floor walk-up and there was no washing machine in my building and I was going around the corner to use the fluff and fold and getting my wash done in like two loads. At least I separated. <laughs> and then I was taking my my other, my finer laundry home to my mom's house in New Jersey on New Jersey Transit and hand washing my sweaters and, you know, keeping my white t-shirts, trying to keep them pristine and all this, this stuff. And... I was driving around New York with my boss, and I was telling him about all of my laundry problems and how I knew all of, everything was washable, but there was no great product, and there was the laundry, and then there was the dry cleaner, and all there was to buy in the, in the U.S. was like wool light or Tide, and it wasn't sufficient. And I was telling him that I had this idea for a business, and I said, I... I have this idea, I need this product, and I want to make this all these products that are specific for the cashmere sweater, the dry clean items that don't need to be dry cleaned, the pit stain, the jeans, and um, the whole thing. And I said, you know, it'd be amazing to have this institute in New York where we could actually do the service, but really have the proper products to do it properly. And he turns to me and he says, Gwen, it sounds like the laundress. 
So that was it. That was it. And that was the conversation. And then um, a couple of weeks later, I came back to, I was probably away for like a long weekend or something. And I come back to my desk and there is a photocopy taped to my computer monitor and it's highlighted and it says the course is how to start your own laundromat. And um, this is from my boss who left this for me on my computer and he was so excited. So I went to his desk and he's like, oh, did you see my note? And I said, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'll pay for you to go to class if you need to. And I was like, Oh my god! What a great like, boss! I was like, oh, next level. So I was like, okay, well, I, I'll, I, I can, I can afford the class. So that was it. I signed up for for a class on how to start a laundromat. What year was this? I incorporated the business in two thousand two. Okay, so it was two thousand two. And how did you and your business partner decide to start the business together? So Lindsay and I met in college, and we were studying at Cornell in the textile and apparel department. I was a design major, apparel design major, and she was apparel management. And we had had various other entrepreneurial interests. And we had similar family backgrounds where our parents owned their own businesses. And and we had complementary skills where I was always like the design and creative. And she was in the sales element of, of the business. So... The first, I had an idea after studying abroad in London, and um, her and I worked on it our senior year in college. And she started a job after school, and I, you know, was the design major, so I didn't have a recruited job after Cornell. <laughs> and um, so we worked on that a little bit, and and sort of paused afterwards. And this, this idea still hasn't happened, so there's still an opportunity <laughs> all this time. So we always had this interest in working together and we knew that that we had complementary skill sets. And so now we were out of school about five years and had our corporate experiences and I and we were friends and hanging all the time. And I, I asked her if I told her the idea and asked her if she was interested and um, she was and there we went from there. So she was working at the time when you... Yeah, so yeah. she was working at Chanel. Okay. And I was working at Ralph Lauren. We had dream jobs, you know, the two sort of best houses. And and really, we both loved our jobs, like really loved our jobs. We loved our coworkers. Obviously, I had the best boss that you can imagine. But we knew that, you know, our future and longevity in that role was the, like I looked around the future of my Ralph Lauren career was you know you're like a lifer and you or you you marry yourself off <laughs> sort of like the landscape of of the people who work there both of our our bosses and and other co-workers were there forever and it was kind of like the future was the future yeah. and um you know, we just always knew that we wanted a business and that we had the skill sets to work together. And this was the idea. And we had and we both had our corporate experiences, which were extremely valuable. Yeah. I stress that no one just started business right after college. Yeah. So it was the time and it was the idea. And um, did you quit your jobs before you had really launched the business or were you? No, no, no. So I incorporated in in 2002 and we launched in 2004. Okay. So it was a two-year concept to market journey. And even after we launched, we launched in March, we launched with the, uh, an SBA loan. So we had a $100,000 loan. That was the only money we had. And Lindsay left in for September. She was first. And then I started full-time in January. So the whole time was moonlighting and every which way shape or form well that's definitely so exciting and you're clearly (laughs) a risk taker and it definitely paid off but I can imagine the early days were not so glamorous can you share with me a little bit about what those early days were like as you were trying to figure out how to develop products and I'm sure sure there was a lot you had to figure out along the way sure sure so I always I feel like a fossil whenever I talk about this because like 15 years ago and then really 17 years ago from when you're from starting. And, you know, nothing was Googleable. There weren't 
a million podcasts telling journeys and stories and networking and uh, groups and, you know, the access today is so different than that landscape. And I had taken a class at Cornell in the Johnson School of Business, Entrepreneurship and Enterprise, and wrote a business plan in that course and developed a whole business and, and defense and presentation. So I had already done one. So I took my my book, my course book, and Lindsay and I sat down and went point by point and wrote our business plan. So we had a full business plan developed before we even knew how to make soap. That was the first thing we did. And we can talk about the plan later, but, you know, and then everything falls into place when you have a plan. Yeah. So you know what you're doing. You know what you're trying to accomplish. Everything's crystal clear. You have your roadmap. We had every product that we ever wanted to make in that plan. So it's amazing. I'm so proud of that business plan because today all we do every year is just fill in the sales figures yeah. by SKU and then accomplishments. So, you know, the things that we launched along the way, you know, just assign the date yeah. and launch and revenue attached to it. So it was very crystal clear what we wanted. So then we build from that. So we knew what, what products we wanted to make, what problems we wanted to solve, and then formulated back into it. So we, we knew we wanted to make a full collection of, of laundry products. And so we had to figure out how to make laundry detergent. Well, I remember that there was a professor at Cornell who was a PhD professor in, in textile department and fiber science, and she worked on detergency. So I sent her an email. <laughs> I said, hi, um, I don't know if you remember me or Lindsay, but um, we were apparel design and, and management, and we have a concept we'd like to discuss for developing detergent. Uh, would you be willing to meet with us? And she wrote back right away and said, how wonderful. Of course I remember you. I'd love to send me a list of your questions. So I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay and I had a full list of all the questions and what we wanted to understand. What makes whites white? What's up with a pit stain? How come this product says this and that's that? You know, why is it blue? <laughs> like all of these things. And um, did she have all the answers for you? Yeah. So she said, let's pick a date and, and come up and, and we'll work together in Ithaca. So I said, great. So in the very beginning, we didn't have any money. I mean, we didn't, we could barely pay the rent and the laundry dry cleaning bills to begin with. So we decided that we would throw a for-profit party to, to fundraise. This before GoFundMe, this yeah, is this before Exactly, yeah. GoFundMe, whatever. So we threw a for-profit party, which made perfect sense at the time because we were paying like $20 for like an open bar to like socialize. So we figured, oh, well, this is acceptable. People do this and we'll have a, a $30 fee and anyone who wants to give us more money, they, they'll be super generous and they will. So we had put together a for-profit party at a bar in the West Village down the street from where I lived and we invited friends and co-workers and family and ex-boyfriends and anyone dates, who's gonna anyone anyone who would show up and give us thirty dollars <laughs> so we had um about five thousand dollars in our pocket and that took a, that let us like go up to Ithaca and rent a car and pay for the bed and breakfast I love and this super scrappy from day so one scrappy. and yeah. we couldn't even afford like a kinko's photocopy so we get to we get to Ithaca and we have our meeting with Kay, and she says, where would you like to begin? All of the questions that you asked, they're all in this mound of, like, 50 textbooks <laughs> behind her chair with Post-it notes coming oh, out just of Just give me day. the answers. <laughs> yeah, this is Cornell. They don't just give you the answers. They should give us the books to read, to learn the answers. So we had a full crash course yeah. on like detergency and molecular structure and everything. And then we took all those books to the library and made the photocopies. And then we were downtown Kinko's photocopying all night. And um, I still have the all of those photocopies awesome. that was the initial product development. But that was really what was our, our learnings of really formalizing our vision to science. 
And then from there, we were able to then start sourcing a chemist with the contract manufacturer and from then, you know, packaging and the journey from there. Who were your first customers? (laughs) Um, Well, when we launched, we launched in 2004 at a trade show in New York at the Javits Center. And I sort of designed and built the booth and had Lindsay's dad. It was like rolling this giant armor that we had bought at a show, at like an antique show and, you know, kidding the whole thing out. Totally arts and crafts, which is like sort of what I still do, basically. <laughs> and at that show, we amassed like our first eight customers and it was it was diverse as as our customers are today. And we had like a sweet linen store in in Alabama and a store in the UK and uh, sort of a, a small handful. And then our sort of like big claim to fame was Lindsay at Chanel had her customers were the upscale retailers and Bergdorf. And so she was doing all of these sales meetings. And so she went and had a sales meeting with Bergdorf on her lunch break at Chanel and got an order from them. So it was like a whole effort of all of this between getting orders from our contacts that we had and and the show. But also we launched an e-commerce site in 2004, which doesn't sound like a big deal now, but at the time... I mean, Amazon was still selling books. Yeah. It just... It was very early. It was yeah. very early. People were scared to put their credit card in online. Yeah, yeah, and people just weren't buying product online, let alone a liquid detergent product. Yeah. The stores that we were selling to were like, you can't have a website. You're going to be competing with me. Yeah. And we're like, you're in Alabama. We can't possibly <laughs> be competing with you. But the funny story about the our e-com site was, to your credit card point, was that it was all a shell. It was it was a full site. You checked out, but you never entered your credit card because we couldn't afford the credit card processing, so- processing yeah. software. <laughs> so we got all these orders <laughs> and then we would get an email like so with like the name and the address and a phone number and the product. And then either one of us would call where we'd return an email and say, thank you so much for your order. We're so excited to ship it to you, but we just need to get your credit card number. <laughs> so you would just take it over the phone. Take it over the phone yeah. and like manually enter, enter it in. in. That's amazing. <laughs> Coming up, you'll hear about the challenges of building an e-commerce brand and generating buzz in the pre-social media era. Going back to Cornell, I was just sharing this with you. So I remember I was actually one of the first users of Facebook. When Facebook first launched, they then released to all the Ivy League colleges. So we thought we were so cool that we got Facebook up at Cornell. And I remember I started using it and I said, this is going to be the way of the future. But I wasn't quite sure how back then, but I always just stayed on the forefront. And that's how I ended up starting this business. But for you starting your company, this was, as you said before, you know, e-commerce sites were first becoming a bit more popular back when you launched, but it was still very early days. And you launched this business really pre-social media. So how did you get the word out back then about your products? And then how has your marketing evolved over the years with all of the changes with social? So when we launched, we had the website, which was unbelievable at the time. And I and I didn't realize that I had a friend that was an engineer who was also a graphic artist. And I didn't understand that. And she built our website. She worked on our logo and our labels. And and I didn't understand that it wasn't normal for one person to do all the graphics, build the site, and make it work. Like, I just thought that's what everyone did. I I didn't really understand that until years later. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) Everyone doesn't do all of this. Like, why have to pay four people? So we were really lucky that we had a pretty functioning website at the time. No one would consider that now, but it was highly functioning at the time. And having that shell e-commerce. But it was really important about that was when we were getting press – I said, oh, well, what stores can you be located? You know, where can we buy it? Where's the credit? 
and we didn't have a huge portfolio of stores or a large retailer in the U.S. So we said, oh, we don't, you don't need that. You can just use our website. So that was very new, nuanced. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a credit at a, a newspaper or a magazine was still like, oh, buy it at Bloomingdale's or oh, buy it here. So like, oh, no, just the laundress.com. That's, that's where you buy it. So that enabled us to have this national press mm-hmm. and international press even as well um, with the website. And the community part is really interesting because we had, from the very beginning, a email address called Ask the Laundress. And it was on our website, and it was an open email for anyone to ask us any question, any laundering question, any anything. And we had that. It still operates today if you email it. But that was our community. So we had people emailing from all over the world wow. asking their laundry questions. And that is how we aggregated our community. And so for years, it was a one-on-one conversation. I replied to all of those emails for years and years about, and it really got and really understanding who our customer is and what their problems are and what their thought process is and um, why they're coming to us. And I would give uh, advice for issues that we didn't even have products for. Or if I knew that they lived abroad, I would be able to give some sort of parallel, you know, thing that that could work. And the questions were very personal. And laundry is very personal to people. You know, I found a christening gown in the attic and I, and I you know, I don't want to ruin it. And, and how, what should I do? Or, you know, my mom's really sick and she's cancer and she's sensitive, you know, she's had a sensitivity to everything or... I have this jacket and it's not only, you know, you could just say it's a down jacket. It's a wool jacket, but it had to be like described of what brand it is and what color it is. And everything's Mm. super, super personal. And my favorite Ask the Laundress question was, I remember because I, I was in Argentina over Christmas and always replying on my Blackberry. It's all these questions. And this girl's writing that she had was on a party bus in Utah had passed out in a pizza. She gave you all this information. The whole thing. And not only was it, it wasn't just a cheese pizza, it was a pepperoni pizza. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And, and on her brand new wool J. Crew coat, what to do. And I'm thinking, this girl did not need to tell me that she passed out on a party bus in a pizza box. She could have simply That's just hilarious. said I have pepperoni pizza on my you jacket. You screenshot these archives <laughs> and put them up as like an archive of questions on like your Instagram stories. People would love this. I know. Samir, write that down. But I have the archive of yes. all of these emails from all of the years and some really classic ones. That's one of my favorite ones. You know, I was like, dear Jenny, it sounded like a really fun party. <laughs> <laughs> Got to connect one on one. Got to connect. Um, but but that was building our yeah, community, yeah. and then we aggregated all of those email addresses that later then became our newsletter, and then we started a fun email that was a a thing Gwen and Lindsay's favorite things, things we love, and would send out a newsletter with our picks and tips and how to's and that was like the early newsletters before signing up for a newsletter on the website and everything subscription and opting in and opting out and all this stuff and it was very very organic yeah no I love that and you the two of you really position yourselves as the faces of the business and you see that more so now but I feel like back then you weren't seeing brands having the founders as the face of the business and being able to, like you said, connect one-on-one with your customers. Right, it right. probably built this loyalty. Yeah. And that the thing about the brand is it's very much our vision and our, and our soul and our passion. And it comes out in the copy and yeah. like, you know, there's been minor changes to it, but for the most part, the copy remains the same, you know, about the pit stain and about our jeans and about things lasting and our personal experiences and why we made this product and why it's important and all of our methodology of why it is what it is and how to use it and what goes with every product is as much about the education. So while we know we make a superior product and it smells amazing because we have amazing fragrances, it's very much about the how-to. We want 
to empower everyone to wash properly and and not be afraid of it and have the best results and and really have an amazing experience. We say we turn an dom- everyday domestic chore into a luxurious experience. I love that. So your beautiful products are sitting right in front of us. Can you <laughs> tell me a little bit about some of the products that we're looking at? And which one was your very first product? Sure. So there's so much backstory. So much to talk about. Um, we... When we were at Cornell researching our formulas, what also came up was the the main surfactant system, the main cleaning ingredient that at the time now less it's more common to not use petroleum because now everyone knows about it. But at the time, we learned that the petroleum surfactant, all the, the majority of petroleum of surfactants are made from petroleum. So. And everyone used them because they were, they were cheap. But we weren't trying to make a price-competitive product. We were trying to make the best product. Yeah. So we ended up with a full plant-derived, green, eco-friendly cleaning collection by sort of coincidence because it was the best. And that's contrary to at the time when you're like, oh, it's eco-friendly, you just assumed it didn't work mm-hmm. because the majority of eco-friendly products at the time – were you were using it because they were eco you weren't using it because it was your best product out there but one of the main goals for us was not to dry clean so we really were trying to accomplish not dry cleaning which is why our first two skews was the wool and cashmere shampoo and the delicate wash but the whole brand really blossomed from the the wool and cashmere shampoo because you know, my Ralph Lauren cashmere sweaters. And um, in my early days, I worked at the cashmere bar. But, you know, every single sweater generally says dry clean yeah. or dry clean only. And and wool and cashmere specifically are really meant to be washed and really... Um, and much, most people don't know that. They don't know that. Yeah. And it's because everything's labeled incorrectly. Yeah. Why uh, is that? Why? <laughs> the fiber content should be accurate on a label but the how-to instruction is up to the manufacturer and the manufacturer will give the easiest and best advice for them not to be liable Mm. so if you put a dry clean ticket on an item and something happens to it then you can blame your dry cleaner for something happening to it versus the manufacturer of something happening to it Insider tips we're getting there. There you go. There you go. So, so the concept of the collection was was really not to dry clean. The wool and cashmere and the delicate wash were our firstborn for not dry cleaning and being able to wash most items that are labeled dry clean, which is the, the delicate washes, the silk and synthetics, and all of those other garments that you have that are labeled dry clean, whether it's a polyester. I'm sure or... this sweater is labeled dry clean only with yeah, the stuff I'm on sure, here. Yeah, I'm sure. And then the other big methodologies to the collection was our start to finish laundry collection, which is our classic scent, which is goes from stain to starch. And what didn't make any sense for us was if you're buying laundry product in the grocery store, all of those products are made from different manufacturers and they all have different fragrances. So you'd have one detergent that smelled one way, a fabric softener that smelled another way, all the way leading to a starch that had its own scent. And so you had like five scents in one load. So we, all of our products are designed that you have a consistent fragrance experience. So the baby scent has a baby softener, which we call conditioner. The signature goes all the way stain to starch. The stain is unscented, so it pairs with all of our other detergents and washes and so on. Wow. So it's incredible how you've really developed this entire line. And I would assume it's because your customers were telling you that they wanted more. Yeah. So our laundry collection was launched with 13 SKUs. So it was pretty robust at the start. And then we added a few along the way that were obviously in the original business plan, but we couldn't afford to launch everything at once. But when we launched Home Cleaning, I think that was in 2008, that was really because of our customers. It was a scary decision to, you know, we're the laundress and we're leaving the laundry room. (laughs) But the the Home Cleaning collection was because our customers were like, "We we love your products, we love the laundry, but what do you recommend for the home? And we're like, hmm. 
seventh generation. Like, uh, so that was time. So it was time. It was time, and and we developed that collection to be really tight. Whereas we have a vast collection for laundry yeah. and fabric specific, but for the home, we wanted a really tight collection because there was so much redundancies and and classification in where there was a toilet cleaner and a counter cleaner and a kitchen cleaner and a bathroom like everything was just redundant and like this is this is silly like we can really you only need like a few products keep it simple keep it simple we need a surface cleaner we need a glass cleaner we need an all-purpose cleaner like let's (laughs) make this happen you know and and everything we make is very thoughtful and purposeful we don't make skews just to make skews or add something to the shelf. It's very with purpose. And our overarching eco sustainability was, you know, it's funny because it's all of the moment and now people are talking about it. But when we were launching, there was, oh, we're starting a laundry detergent company. Everyone's like, are you out of your mind? You know, our parents thought we were crazy. (laughs) We were at these great jobs. I was leaving a 401k, which was like the holy grail to my parents. And it just sounded crazy. It was never crazy to us. We were extremely confident with what we were doing. Yeah. We knew we needed it. And we, you know, we knew that there was an absolute need and function. And therefore, it would be responded to. Coming up, you'll hear about the process of selling the brand to Unilever and why having the right lawyer and team behind you during such a pivotal time matters so much. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com. I think something that's remarkable is that you and your business partner started this business. You guys did not raise money. As you continue to grow and scale this business, you didn't need to. Can you share how you were able to scale your business without raising funding? And then I know you recently sold your business. So congratulations. That is such an accomplishment. And I want to hear more about what that process was like selling your business. It's not that we didn't need to raise money. We never had any money. So the money was always an issue. We started with a $100,000 SBA loan, which sounded like, you know, a windfall, but half of it went to our first production run. And then we had to sell the goods. So it was constantly a, a hand to mouth. You know, you, you produce, you sell, you produce, you sell, and keeping up ahead of a, you know, two month lead time was always hand to mouth. We put our hands over the dam with credit cards, a lot of credit cards. So between 2004 and 2008, when the market crashed, we had amassed about a quarter million dollars of credit card debt. Wow. The credit cards dried up after 2008. <laughs> so the debt didn't go away, but there were no new cards coming in. <laughs> you were capped. <laughs> we were capped out. We were capped out. Yeah. And then we were doing uh, bank loans and lines of credit and everything that way. But we didn't raise money because we had taken every meeting with the, the VCs and the and the PEs and all of those people along the way. And... Um, and it never made sense to us. And we didn't understand the, the economics and, and giving so much away and the valuations. It just it just never made any sense to us. We also heard like every like worst story out there. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't help. And we're product people and creative and developers. We're not fundraisers. Mm-hmm. So it just wasn't part of a comfort level or DNA. And it just didn't make any sense. So... We just never did it. And we, it was organic every year, you know, you, you hustled and you built and you sold and we had our three revenue streams. We had our, our wholesale, our U S domestic wholesale. We had our e-commerce that evolved that eventually we could take a credit card on. Um, So that was an instant, you know, instant cash return. And then we had an international business where we had shipped internationally since the beginning as well, and we had a, a number of international key partners that we were shipping products to every month as well. So we sort of had this hybrid of income and orders and, and being able to sustain that way and really um, 
build and grow. And, and again, this is before you had major ad spends that you would be able to blow on Google ads yeah. or on media that wasn't really, you know, you could buy it magazine ad placement. Right. But, you know, that was Did you like, ever do that? No, of course not. We don't have any money. No we, budget, yeah. No money. You, like, do creative things. You got actual yeah. real PR. Yep. <laughs> you know? So there was no shortage of, of being a laundry expert, you know, of real simple. They always wanted, you know, needed advice. And so we were the experts of yeah. laundry. And we were the, the brand that had the inherent how-to. We weren't just, like a tide or a woolite or like who is that brand voice who is that person even speak to you know someone in like the science department yeah you know so we we are and were the experts in making videos like you just said that you watched the pit stain video well i don't know which version you watched but the original it was a new one the original videos are like a fright of the archive (laughs) but um Hey, those would actually perform really well on social because yeah. everyone wants the organic yeah, the, stuff the anymore. Old school, unedited, like scary. <laughs> but that was how we got our word out. And it was really just being creative and organic and and speaking to the brand and with the passion and the how-to. And that environment, you know, just continued to grow and grow and grow mm-hmm. as e-com grew and as social grew and just gave us a bigger platform. When were you able to start paying yourselves? Uh, well, we had to pay ourselves early because we didn't have any other money. Right. <laughs> so we had to make it work and make it That was quick. the only option, yeah. <laughs> the only option. There was no other money or funding or parental support. It was – this was it. And how did you know when it was time to potentially sell the business? Were people knocking on your door that they were interested? So from the original business plan, the goal was always to sell. Mm -hmm. It was always that we would build this business. We had an, you know, an incredible vision and, but we knew we could only take it so far, especially organically. And our business plan was written off of roughly around Bliss Spa Mm -hmm. and Bumble and Bumble. And at the time, those two brands were a niche service and product markets. Now it's like whatever. But for instance, the Bliss Spa model, the idea was that there was one spa in New York and you could have your body scrub and your, you know, bliss scrub and, and body butter. But you could have that anywhere in the world if you could just buy that scrub and that body butter. And you could be in Tokyo or in Paris or whatever and have that bliss spa experience at home. So that was really um, the model that we had where we would have our one institute in New York City that was like the laundry mecca. And... Um, but anyone in the world could have the laundress experience in the in their own home. And, you know, this was in the very early onset where just there was a handful of brands. It was like Bobby Brown and, and Hard Candy. And it was like this, like, frenzy of any product or Stila. Like yeah. were, there were brands that were coming to market and being acquired within a year. It was nuts. I mean, Estee Lauder was just grabbing every yeah. um, indie brand out there. And... Um, um, LVMH bought Bliss and they turned over a couple of different times, but it was, that was the environment pre-2008. Yeah. Um, so we always, ex- we always wanted or expected a plan to be acquired by, uh, you know, a big consumer product company. And we were, we were getting to the point, we were really looking to be going to market a year after our acquisition. But um, we had opened. We finally opened our store in New York. What year is this now? It was four years ago. Okay. Uh, and that brick and mortar was in the plan, and we thought, you know, and in our in our original plan, we thought we were going to be launching with it. But with a hundred thousand dollars and half of it going to production. Not getting retail space in New York. For that, that wasn't <laughs> happening. That was happening. So we we you know had to make a decision if we were going to find more money or make it raise it or whatever or work with what we had. We decided to work with what we have, which is was the right move for us. 
Um, and that's the route that we always went. So we finally were able to make that store come true. And that was really every year we had our profits and we rolled them over to another project, you know, whether it was building a new website, uh, you know, that's a huge expense. And that was a project. And then it got to, you know, we had enough money that we could now put towards that store. And the store was very important to us because we really, it was still undone. It's unfinished business, but we really needed to have our community have an experience and be able to understand the brand and understand it through our lens and our experience. And um, so we have a, a, a beautiful little store in Soho and um, where you can buy the whole collection and you can buy special products that are only at the store. Uh, and our team is trained uh, to, you know, laundress experts. So they're answering questions and doing how-to tut- tutorials and people come and bring their items with them to ask how, you know, how to clean. Oh my and, gosh, I love that. Yeah, it's it's... It's a full service down there. Um, But that really, that gave us our platform and the visual of the brand. And um, it also gave us that space where um, two years ago, someone from Unilever walked in. And I got a call and it said, huh, you know, one of the women at the store was like, Gwen, someone from Unilever is here. I think you should come down and meet them. I was like, can you pass the phone? <laughs> so I I had a brief chit chat with this guy and was like, what are you, you know, trying to understand what he was really doing? Was he like taking photos? Was he buying samples? Like really what's happening here? Um, and that started our conversation with them. So what was that process like actually selling your business? And can you share advice to other entrepreneurs who maybe are in talks with potential companies who are looking to acquire their business? And are there lessons that you learned along the way that you wish you knew? A couple questions there. <laughs> so many questions. Uh, so along the way, you know, because we knew this was a goal, and along the way, you keep having meetings. You're like, can you kind of explain how this process works? Like a step-by-step, you know, valuations, procedures. And and every person that we spoke to, whether it was a banker or a lawyer or whomever, was like, oh, every, every time's different. And we're like, can you – that does not sound helpful. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just give us some overarching – are we making presentations? What are you – what are we doing? And um, – so we still never had that understanding. So now they show up and we schedule a meeting. We go to New Jersey to the Unilever headquarters and, you know, we have this this incredible meeting. And they're like, we want you to be part of the Unilever family. Do you want to join? <laughs> just like, like that. Just like that. Like if I join a sorority, like <laughs> what is happening here? Like, um, we're like, yeah, of course we want to be part of the family, you know, but then what? Yeah. So it was so non-traditional, which I understand is not helpful for the listener. But the take the takeaway what I learned was um, you need a banker, and you need an a great banker that shares your vision and your understanding of the brand and the brand's value and your value. Number one. You did you have that person? We did not. Okay. And we also didn't have a proper business lawyer for this sort of transaction work. And we had amazing lawyers that we work with. Um, you know, our, our closest legal person was our trademark lawyer mm-hmm. who um, – you know, we've been building our trademark portfolio all these years, which is incredible. Um, but we didn't have a team to to act on this. And that's what we need. So now we're like in these conversations and now we're like, oh, we need to put this team together. And we didn't even understand what these people did or why we needed a banker because we just met them. And they wanted us to join. What do we need a banker for? Yeah. 
Um, so there was a lot of time where we fumbled around through that process without these people in place and then getting the proper people in place. How long did that process take? <laughs> it was a very excruciating long 13 months, yeah. which is incredibly long for a deal. Yeah. Incredibly long. So it was on and off a dozen times. And are you happy now that you made the move? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So what is next so, for the laundress? Yeah, so we we had our understanding, um, made it happen, um, and, you know, it's exciting. It, it's I, – I, I built this baby. This is very much my baby. Um, the products are my baby. Our team's my babies. Um and I say that I sent my baby to Harvard. You know, that's how I feel about it. Um, Unilever is an incredible partner. They have it, – it's the funny part is, is I always wanted to sell to seventh generation. That was like my dream prom date. <laughs> and then when Unilever acquired seventh generation, I was felt like jilted. I was like, oh, my gosh, my prom date just ditched me. <laughs> like – they left. Uh, so then the irony is now we're back with together, Seven Generation yeah. together at Unilever. We can hang out. We can hang out. <laughs> we're, we're now like cousins. That's so funny. Yeah. So, but they're they're a great partner for us, not only with Seven Generation as part of the portfolio, but they really have um, a very strong uh, mission for sustainability that works with our eco business and our um methodology and really will only um make it better make make it we can grow in that element together and they also understood the value where we were a prestige cleaning company and they have prestige beauty beauty brands with their masks so they really saw our value as their prestige home cleaning yeah. brands to complement their mass market so they don't want to make us mass they want to keep us as that value and prestige, which is important because that's who we are. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because when you do sell to another company, a lot of times they'll try to change the DNA of who you are and that exactly. you've been able to really maintain that is incredible. Do you have a typical laundress customer and how has your audience evolved since starting the company in 2004? Well, I actually love this question because the answer is not what people assume so when I'm when someone's describing the laundress to someone else in my presence, they'll say, oh, you know, it's this like luxury product that you only use with your finest items, like your designer this or that, and, you know, only special things. And I'm like, oh, I cringe when I hear that because it is not, you know, this – luxury product it's a luxurious experience but it is a product for everyone and and what that answer is also represents our customer so our customer is incredibly diverse we have a huge age range from early 20s to 70s uh we also have an really interesting uh, gender split. We have a ton of male customers and our in we have an income diversity as well. So what really that shows and explains our product as well, where everybody has dirty laundry and everybody has clothing and home items that are important to them. And early on in the Ask the Laundress I was telling you about was – you know, having that dialogue with all of these customers and with all of these people and the things that they're trying to save or the things that they're that's important to them. So, you know, I got emails about, oh, I, you know, I'm buying my wool and cashmere shampoo to wash my brand new sweater, my brand new, you know, cashmere sweater that was from J. Crew or from Ann Taylor. And this was not like a $500 sweater, but it was important to them. And so you had a customer who's 
who may be buying a $100 sweater under a $100 sweater and buy and willing to spend 18 for the care. So, so interesting. Yeah. So very diverse and 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 really also show, showing the economic value of the product where you could spend $18 for one bottle of woolen cashmere shampoo which yielded you over 30 washes and was, you know, cheaper than two dry cleaning two sweaters. So there's that value proposition yeah. as well. Yeah. So what's next for you personally <laughs> and business and uh, for the laundress? Well, personally. Um, Getting some sleep after your uh, trip, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's an exciting time. It's, I'm excited to be able to be growing with Unilever and being able to leverage some of their resources and you know, some things are not as easy as it is when you're an independent small machine. Uh, but also, you know, having exposure and, and, and resources and cash and is, is certainly fun. Um, and to really be able to focus personally on, on the creative of the brand and the making, you know, incredible products and continuing to make even better along the way. And, um, Focus on the branding and the the creative parts that I love. All the fun stuff. All the fun <laughs> stuff, and sort of shed some of the not so fun yeah. stuff I've done all these years. No, that's definitely quite an accomplishment, yeah. and it's really incredible the company that you and Lindsay have have both built, and it's been incredible to hear your story. My last question for you is: What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Oh, it it's it means having a dream and and making it come true. I love that. Well, where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, buy your incredible products? Yes. So thelaundress.com to our full e-commerce experience, as well as sign up for our newsletter on our website and also enjoy um, our content on our with our how-tos and favorite things and all of the amazing resources we have and searching how to get a stain out and what fabric to wash and all those wonderful things. I love it. And then we also have um, a code for the Entreprenista listeners. Amazing. What is yeah. it? Yeah. So it's 25% off Ooh. on com with the favorite code Entreprenista. Yes. All right, you guys. Use code <laughs> Entreprenista for 25% off. And I can tell you I'm sitting here next to these bottles that aren't even opened and I can smell how good they smell through the bottles. So your clothes are going to smell incredible and so are you. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm Stephanie and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Thanks for listening. 